Industry Focus is brought to you by PayPal Credit. Summer is here, so make the most of it by booking your travel plans or purchasing your favorite gadgets with six-month special financing on purchases of $99 or more with PayPal Credit. Learn more at paypal.com fool. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, July the 24th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones. I am joined via Skype by healthcare guru, Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing really, really good. And um, I hope everybody out there listening is enjoying their summer so far, getting ready for their August travel plans and the like. Are you going anywhere, Shannon, for vacation? I'm headed to California here very soon. Going to actually have some time on Huntington Beach. I've been out to LA, never to Huntington Beach. I'm excited about some downtime and just honestly sitting on a beach with a book. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a great way to spend uh, some time this summer. I've actually never been out that way. Maybe some listeners can chime in and give you some tips on places to eat. Yes. And Todd, you're headed out to Germany soon. I am in two two or three weeks. I'm going to disappear for 10 days and see what Munich is all about. I'm really looking forward to visiting Munich and Prague and maybe getting down to Innsbruck. Yes, beautiful, beautiful area. Um, and uh, look forward to hearing about your travels when you get back. Hopefully nothing too crazy will happen in the biotech space. Uh, as for today's show, we've got some news, both from biotech and from the cannabis industry, July's been a busy month for marijuana <laughs> around the globe. But, uh, Todd, let's kick things off with biotech, specifically uh, Gilead Sciences in Galapagos. So, back on July the 14th, Gilead Sciences, and that's ticker symbol G-I-L-D, and Clinical Stage Biotech Galapagos announced they were deepening their partnership in a $5 billion deal CEO Daniel O'Day, Todd, uh, I guess has been on the job only since the spring. He's already announced about a half dozen partnerships, so he's really making his mark already. This particular deal, though, um, is structured, I guess, a little bit atypical, but really gives a lot of optionality for Gilead and gives Galapagos a good infusion of some cash. Yeah, big bucks. Big bucks, no question there. And I think one of the things investors, Gilead Science, we've talked a lot about on the show before, what's Gilead going to do next? I mean, it's it's sitting on what, bazillions? Is that a technical term? Bazillions of dollars? bazillions. <laughs> uh, that it can deploy to kind of get itself kick-started and start you know, generating revenue and, and earnings growth for investors again. And everybody's been kind of sitting on the edge of the seat to see what Daniel O'Day, who came over from Roche, would do once... He uh, got comfortable in that C-suite seat, and now we're 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 really starting to get a feel for how he may or what his vision may be for Gilead Sciences in the future. And to me, it seems like this deal uh, is a, is a is a good indicator that we're not going to get um, maybe a, a you know huge mega deal where they buy 100% of a company, kind of like what they did a couple years ago with Kite when they bought that for 11.9 billion. And instead, what they'll do is they'll cut these deals. I was trying to think of a way to like, because it's such a complicated deal. There's a lot of moving pieces to it. I think when you boil it all down, maybe a good way to think of it is that Gilead Sciences bought roughly 75% of Galapagos future revenue potential. And um, and that's because it's handing over a bunch of money um, to get the rights or have the option to get the rights to basically everything in Galapagos pipeline from here 
and then over the next 10 years and uh, Galapagos for its part will sit back and collect royalties of between 20 to 25 percent on anything that gets uh, approved uh, from here with some exceptions. It, it's a complex deal. It's very no complex. Question. It's very complex. From a high level, um, it's a $5 billion deal, but when you break that down, Gilead right now is making a $3.95 billion investment in upfront cash, plus an additional $1.1 billion equity investment in the company. I think the way that you summarized it is probably the easiest way to say it. Um, but even further, this is essentially given Gilead ownership of about 22% of Belgian-based Galapagos, um, but with the warrants, this state could go up to 29.9%, with the promise that Gilead won't try to take them over or try to increase their ownership stake over the next 10 years. Um, Gilead also got two Galapagos board seats as well. So I think holistically, very kind of complicated uh, deal that continues to allow Galapagos to remain independent. And I think that's really what Daniel O'Day, coming from his Roche background, really values is to have these business units that can operate on their own, really drive innovation. Because as you and I have talked about a lot on the show, Todd, oftentimes those big mega merger deals in biotech never pan out. The synergies never happen. And more importantly, I think there's a lot of culture clashes that happen when you start to mix up teams and start to share resources. So I can see this is very much a deal right out of the Roche playbook. Right. And smaller companies are, they're more nimble. They can act faster on advances in science. <clears throat> they can commit more of the money that they, they, they raise directly to R&D rather than overhead. And, you know, think about it this way. I mean, Galapagos shareholders are certainly more willing to have the capital that Galapagos has go into R&D, uh, where shareholders of Gilead Sciences may be more interested in seeing their earnings climb, their dividend payouts increase. And that creates a natural conflict between the R&D team and, say, the CFO who's trying to allocate the money across the organization to keep everybody happy. You know, I think that one of the things investors who are new to the Gilead and Galapagos story may be asking themselves is, why was Gilead interested in this company in the first place? And it stretches back to 2015. And that was at the point where AbbVie, uh, which is a, a, a Gilead nemesis, if you will, in hepatitis C, um, walked away from filgotinib, a selective JAK1 inhibitor that the two were developing as a potential successor to AbbVie's uh, best-selling Humira, which, as many of you probably already know, racks up about $20 billion in annual sales treating autoimmune disorders such as rheumatoid arthritis. When AbbVie walked away, Gilead Sciences saw that as a great opportunity to get into what is a multi-billion dollar market opportunity. So they went out and they said, okay, tell you what, We'll give you $300 million up front to license the rights to Filgotnib. Um, we'll help you develop it through phase two and phase three trials. We'll also give you four, <clears throat> over $400 million to buy 12 to 13% ownership stake. That, those trials and the development of Filgotnib have been very successful. You know, in phase two, Filgotnib showed that it could um, reduce or increase response rates to patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Those were backed up recently with the result of positive phase three trials, which again show that it matches up very favorably to methotrexate and, um, and potentially on a safety front matches up well against Humira. And now the two companies are planning on filing Filgotnib 
for FDA and EU approval before the end of this year, theoretically clearing the way for this drug to make it to market about 10 months after the FDA accepts that application. So let's say late in 2020. So this seemed like a really good time for Gilead Sciences maybe to solidify uh, its relationship with Galapagos, which has proven through Filgotnib that it knows a thing or two about developing drugs that can make their way through trials. All right. So, Todd, this this $5 billion deal is just not about Filgotnib. Um, it is really about strengthening Gilead's pipeline, really for the long term. And as I mentioned, you've got a lot of optionality with this particular deal. A lot of them are still pretty early stage, though. I think Filgotinib is the one that gets all the attention. Certainly, as you mentioned, has had some good results in clinical trials. Um, but essentially, Gilead's getting access to six drugs in development, plus 20 other early stage programs. It's pretty remarkable with this one deal. I mean, it's effectively doubling their pipeline in one fell swoop, Todd. Right, and giving Galapagos just a ton of, of financial flexibility in the process and the potential to have it even be a bigger deal because, you know, each time that, so two of the drugs that they also have the options on now are GLPG 1690, which is an osteoporosis, I believe, osteoarthritis drug that's in um, phase two. Uh, if, if, if that ends up getting approved, they can collect milestones, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of milestones on that. Um, they've got another drug that's also further back in, in trials that, you know, they can collect another 200 million on plus, you know, hundreds of millions in, in, in regulatory and commercial milestones. And then you mentioned the 20 programs that Galapagos has, you know, in, in even earlier stages, if any of those eventually make their way down the pike, um, Gilead Sciences can option into those and pay 150 million per program to get the rights to that. So, you know, this is this is a ca- potential cash cow that could, that could stretch out for years for Galapagos and reward Gilead investors with a stable, um, stable production of new pipeline candidates. And just really lessen their reliance on the HIV franchise, which we've talked about quite a quite a bit, um, and of course the ongoing concerns about the hepatitis uh, franchise as well. So this also gives Gilead a foothold in Europe, which they previously have not had to this degree, um, and really puts them in right in the court of the immunology space, which I think is important for a company that is trying to figure out where its growth is going to come from. So, this deal, all in all, I, I like the deal. I do like the optionality. I think for a lot of investors, you're still wondering, you know, is there going to be this big transformative deal? I really don't think so. I think you're going to see a lot of these smaller plays really designed to beef up that pipeline long term. Yeah, and I think actually that you know if you're an investor and you're looking at these two, um, Gilead's Sciences is still trading at a pretty decent discount, uh, if you will, based on where it was a few years ago, where Galapagos is hitting new highs on the deal. I actually think that the deal might be a big, bigger win for Gilead, um, and and may may give it investors yet another reason to to go out and consider finally putting that in their portfolios if they don't have it already. Yes, great point, Todd. And with that, uh, Todd, let's take a quick break just to get a quick word from our friends. If you have any big purchases coming up, like trips, hotels, home goods, or just about anything, you can use PayPal Credit and enjoy six months special financing on purchases of $99 or more. For big purchases like these, try PayPal Credit. 
It's a digital, reusable credit line built into your account with PayPal. It's great for big or unexpected expenses, and you can use it anywhere PayPal is accepted. Applying is easy. Just answer a few quick questions, and you'll know within seconds if you're approved. To learn more and apply, go to paypal.com fool. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. That's paypal.com fool. And thanks to PayPal Credit for their advertising support of Industry Focus. All right, Todd, we're back. Let's turn our attention to the cannabis space now. Uh, CanTrust Holdings, that's ticker symbol CTST, or probably I should say Can't Trust Holdings at this point, Todd. <laughs> uh, news just came out uh, prior to the opening bell on Monday, July the 8th, that CanTrust, one of the major Canadian licensed producers, grew cannabis in unlicensed rooms at one of its facilities. A huge no-no, particularly given the company's focus in growing medical-grade cannabis for patients. Shares absolutely tanked, I think, down almost 60% now, Todd, on the news. But really, Todd, this particular story is just a long list in the line of woes that CanTrust has had this year. Yeah, this is a this is disappointing. It's a good reminder to investors, including myself, I happen to be a shareholder of CanTrust, um, that you need to diversify when you go into particular industries, you can't don't bet everything on one small cap company, right? Spread it out. Because, you know, this is where the go fast mentality of entrepreneurs in fast growing markets like this can work against you if the practices and processes aren't in place, the corporate governance isn't in place to make sure that everybody is doing things by the book. You know, there's We've, we've talked about it on the show. You read about it online. There's a shortage of marijuana in Canada following its, the legalization of recreational use last fall. And that's prompted all of these uh, Canadian cannabis companies to invest tremendous amount of money in expanding their capacity to grow marijuana. Um, the rule in Canada is, though, that you need to have a license first before you can cultivate it. And you know, the disclosure that they were growing in these five rooms, which you mentioned follow is a string in, in bad news this year for this stock, um, is obviously very disheartening because it shows that, you know, management, you know, maybe cut some corners toward that goal of, of becoming one of the largest Canadian producers. And we'll get to the implications of what, what could happen from here in a second. But to run down the list of quote unquote bad news that this company has delivered to investors this year. Back in March, it reported quarterly results that were shy of industry watchers' expectations. Their fourth quarter revenue had clocked in around $16.2 million, and that's in Canadian dollars. That was up a lot, 132% year over year, but people were looking for Canadian $20 million in sales. So, you know, fell shy of that. Then in April, they announced, okay, we're going to issue more shares to solidify our balance sheet and give us plenty of money to execute on our growth strategy. Problem is, there wasn't a lot of appetite among investors for that deal. And as a result, the deal actually closed at a price that was 15% below the stock's closing price the day before. So that's not a good sign, right? And then in May, they reported the next quarter's or most recent quarter's results, uh, and that showed very little sequential revenue growth. Now, we know that Canadian recreational market has been struggling, kind of flattening out um, in the first quarter, so that's not too surprising, but still, not necessarily something that you would want to see. You'd rather see 
this company generating strong quarter over quarter growth. Then in July, uh, before they even told investors that they had gotten caught for growing um, in these five unlicensed rooms, they had they disclosed that you know their previous plans to grow up to seventy five thousand kilograms of marijuana in on new acreage they had purchased may not pan out. They may actually be zero to seventy five thousand kilo, kilos because they had yet to receive licensing licensing for that for that space. So you've got this string of bad news that has just punished investors. And now the stock is trading, I think, at a market cap of about three hundred and eighty million, which, um, you know, considering the 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 market caps of some of the competitors and peers that have similar capacity is is downright tiny. Yeah, extremely. And as you mentioned, a lot of the, the issues that have played Cantrust this year aren't specific to Cantrust. As you mentioned, there is the supply shortage related to regulatory and packaging constraints uh, throughout the supply chain. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say with Cantrust, growing cannabis in unlicensed rooms, I don't think they are the only player in this space that has done that. Here's why I say that. <laughs> um, I think when legalization happened in October of 2018, you had a lot of licensed producers. Um, well, they weren't licensed at the time, but they were preparing for that. But they did not want to actually start building out anything until they knew it was a sure deal. As a result of that, now it's been an all-out sprint to try to get these facilities up and running as quickly as possible so that they can gain market share. The problem with that is Health Canada and their massive backlog on these licenses while these companies are waiting to grow and to sell and to process and do all of the things that they need to do to actually start generating revenue. When you're looking at the, the backlog, um, at one point it was up to, I think, 800 uh, applications in Health Canada's backlog. Um, and that was, I think, earlier this year. I don't know where it's at right now, but 800 is a lot. Cultivation licenses themselves take months. Sales licenses take about a year. So if you're a grower, that means you could be waiting up to two years to get all of your licensing in play. You have to remember, there are just so many producers that are trying to get online right now, that are trying just to get into a spot to start generating revenue. I don't think CanTrust is the only one. I think they're the only one that's been caught so far. If you remember, this was actually reported because an employee, um, I think, was disgruntled and um, whistle blew on this particular company. So I don't think that they're the only ones. And that is by no means to condone what they did. I think there's a lot of regulatory hiccups. Um, but I think CanTrust, unfortunately, even news this morning came out, Todd, that the executives knew seven months before Health Canada found out about this. So if anything, I have a lot less confidence in the management team, which I think um, you're going to have to see a shakeup there. But again, I, I think this is one of many stories that we'll probably see as the regulators and the producers try to get on the same page. Right. So, CanTrust has created, the board of directors has created a special committee comprising of independent uh, members of the board to investigate this matter. And they did send a letter this week responding to uh, Health Canada. Health Canada did say that they received the letter. They have not said, um, either of them, what's in the letter. And Health Canada has not said when it may respond to the letter. So we don't know how this is going to shake out. 
you could go one of two ways. One way would be very good for investors. The other could be potentially disastrous to investors, right? I mean, you could you could have theoretically Health Canada say, guess what? We're revoking your licenses, effectively meaning that you're going to have to go out and fire sale all your stuff to somebody else. Um, I don't suspect that'll happen, but I suppose it's a possibility. The other um, end of that could be that, okay, the board gets together and says, tell you what, here's our plan to make sure nothing bad ever happens here again. We'll ditch our CEO, and I think he's got to go. I think at this point, he's got to go. This is like Afria and you know the CEO having to step down to Afria earlier this year. I think he's got to go. Uh, so you, you, you change up the management. You put practices and processes in place. They, they allow these, these you know, grow rooms to operate. And then by the end of this year, you've got a company who's producing 50,000 kilos uh, at an annualized rate of 50,000 kilos. And then next year, theoretically, you could have them exit 2020 at 200,000 kilos. So with a $380 million market gap, there's theoretically a lot of optionality there. But again, the big risk and the big unknown, what will Health Canada finally decide so to do? So true. I think at the very least, you're going to see a hefty fine. You're probably going to see a suspension. I don't know if they'll revoke uh, their licenses. I guess another follow-up question to that too is: with whatever regulatory punishment, will it just impact the the one facility where they were growing in these unlicensed rooms? How does this impact their outdoor grow facility? Uh, because CanTrust was really focused on investing and building that up ahead of the derivatives market, which is set to open in December of this year. So, I think you've got a lot of questions there. Another question is just what's going to happen to the inventory related to these unlicensed rooms? Right now, they've got uh, 5,200 kilos on hold. The company also voluntarily is withholding 7,500 um, kilos of dried cannabis for a total of about 12,500. Considering they only sold 3,000 kilos and produced 9,400 during March, I'm concerned about what's going to happen to this inventory. I mean, you're more than likely, assuming that the fines and the other punishments um, don't necessarily completely knock them offline. But even so, that means they're probably going to have to go to the wholesale market, um, which they really have very little leverage in terms of negotiating power at this point. And even so, that's going to continue to squeeze their margins even further. So, I think, as you mentioned, you've got the scenario. This is a very high risk, high reward play. Things, you know, they get a slap on the wrist and they're able to move forward. Um, another scenario I'm going to throw out there is a white knight, because I think the sharks are more than likely circling at this point. Uh, you've got CanTrust right now, half-completed Niagara campus, 60,000 square foot Vaughn facility. I talked about their outdoor grow facility that can be used for extraction, which a lot of the players are trying to focus on the extraction ahead of derivatives. Um, you've also got CanTrust right now is one of only four Canadian growers that has supply deals in all 10 provinces in Canada, and they've got a foot in the door in the U.S. They announced um, just recently a joint hemp farm venture with Elk Grove in California, just so they can ride the wave of hemp legalization here in the U.S. So, CanTrust has a ton of assets. I would not be surprised to see someone come in and attempt to take them over either. 
Yeah, and they also get a hundred and fifty million or so on of cash on the books that can help finance whatever deal ends up getting cut if if that's the route they end up going. I don't know if they'll go that route because I'm not sure the shareholders are going to want them to fire sale because obviously I don't think any of these companies are going to come in and offer top dollar. <laughs> they don't have to. Um, they might. You never know. Um, this could be one of those situations, Shan. Right where it. You know, we always talk about, you know, they buy the rumor and sell the news. Buy the news. Maybe it's a sell the You might be onto something here, Todd. But yeah, news. a lot to watch with this story. Um, regulatory mayhem right now with Health Canada and these producers. Again, I, I don't think this will be the last story that we hear of mishaps. This is still an industry very much in its infancy. They're all trying to get on the same page. So I think volatility is to be expected, if not really embraced, if you are investing in the cannabis space right now. Um, and I think it's important not to always have the knee jerk reaction um, and sell on every piece of news or even buy simply um, because of a rumor that's out there. But it does mean that you have to stay on top of things and you really have to evaluate the quality of the executive team, the management team behind a lot of these companies as well. Yeah, and don't expect any good news when they report quarters, right? results. Even ahead of derivatives in December, I mean, that's not going to actually kick <laughs> right. in. We won't see that until you know 2020. So this is going to be a long, hard slog for CanTrust and CanTrust shareholders. Uh, but we'll be sure to keep everyone up to date on all the latest. And that will do it for this week's industry-focused healthcare show. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Dan Boyd. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!